Hey Moth family, save the date for the Moth main stage on Saturday, February 27th at 7.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Join us and host Jonathan Ames for an evening of stories as five storytellers take the virtual stage and share a true personal tale from their life. Stories of glory and defeat, taunting fate, laughing in the face of danger, and the moments that forever changed the course. Buy tickets now at themoth.org slash virtual mainstage. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Sarah Austin Janess, producing director of The Moth, and I'll be your host this time. The Moth is true stories told without notes in front of a live audience. We have three stories this hour, one about the lengths you'll go when you're shipwrecked on a deserted island, and a story about a well-placed moat in Pittwater, Australia, and our first story from June Cross. June is a journalist, a documentary filmmaker, and she's a professor at Columbia University. She grew up in the 60s trying to balance with her feet in two different worlds. She told her story at a moth night called Walk the Line. Here's June, live at the moth. Every family has secrets. In my family, the secret was me. I was secret because I was black. These days, you'd say I was biracial. But in the 50s, when you were born, there was no biracial. You were either born black or you were born white. End of story. My mother was a farm girl from Pocatello, Idaho, who'd come to New York to seek her fame and fortune here on the big stage. She met my dad, who was a performer from Philadelphia. He was part of a, a duo called Stump and Stumpy. He'd been popular in the 40s. They met backstage at the Paramount Theater and pretty much became constant companions for the next four or five years. And here I am. But as the 50s progressed, my dad's career began to go downhill. And as his career began to go downhill, so did his life. And he drank more and more. And the more he drank, the angrier he got. And in some kind of twisted sort of vision, he thought that if he beat my mother long enough, she'd stay with him. My mother had sunk pretty low, but she hadn't sunk so low that she was willing to stay with a man who beat her every day. So sooner or later she got up. I was about 18 months old. She left him, and we moved into another apartment um, in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And that's where I lived with her for the next four or five years. But there was one problem. She had left, she had had the courage to get into a relationship with a black man, but she didn't have the courage to raise this child who looked like me, who was me. And so she began to leave me for periods of time with a friend of hers in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Um, it was a couple that she called Peggy and Paul, and whom I would come to call Aunt Peggy and Uncle Paul. And I would go and I would stay with them for periods of time. And gradually one day, it was about a week before I would have started my first day of school, she left me there. And I never came back to New York. And she, so the way it worked was this. I would go to school Monday through Friday in Atlantic City. 
Um, and then on school vacations or breaks, I would come visit my mom here in New York. Um, and I really lived two lives. I lived a life uh, where I liked, um, <laughs> I lived when I was with my mom, the life where I liked Perry Como and the Beatles and Barbara Streisand. And then when I was in Atlantic City, I lived a life where I liked the Four Tops and James Brown. Um, and uh, that's sort of the way life went. Aunt Peggy was a very strict disciplinarian. She thought that my mother had been way too lenient with me, which mom had been. There was no structure in mom's house. When I lived in Atlantic City, mom had, Aunt Peggy had structure. If you can imagine trying to live with two mothers, having one is bad enough. <laughs> Here I had two. <laughs> I had one very strict one, and one who was actually very demanding. My mom was very demanding, but when I would go to visit my mother on weekends, there was absolutely no structure. We would leave the Port Authority, go out, head out to the uh, rotisserie chicken place across the street from uh, Port Authority, pick up a chicken, go home, eat dinner at 11.30 at night, stay up and watch whatever was on television as long as I wanted until I fell asleep. And then the next day, we would get up, go to a matinee, usually on Broadway. We might go to a second one on Saturday night and then to whatever we could watch on Sunday, matinee as well, before I got back on the bus and went to Atlantic City, went back to Atlantic City. It was almost like, I used to liken it to crossing a razor blade. Um, and if I crossed it carefully, it would scrape instead of cut. Six years went by in this fashion and Gradually, she began to date other men, and finally she began dating um, a comic and character actor, who some of you may know, um, he was Larry Storch. He became uh, Corporal Acorn in the series F Troop in the 60s. And uh, mom was elated that she'd finally found a man and thought she was finally gonna be able to actually get him to marry her, which had been the driving force of her life, <laughs> to try to become Mrs. Somebody. Um, and one night, one day while I was here, one weekend while I was here in New York, she threw a party for Larry and his family and the managing agent. And she asked me to play a game with her. And the game was call her Aunt Norma during the entire period of this party. And being eight years old and not knowing really what she was asking me to do, I said, fine, I will. And I did. But at some point during the uh, evening, the adults started giving me champagne. Being a showbiz crowd, it was, they sort of, it was sort of cute to see a, um, a sort of tipsy eight-year-old running around the house. And I slipped, and I called her mom. And she snatched me and dragged me into the bathroom. And really, her face was so contorted with, I thought then was anger, but what I now know was fear. And she said, don't you ever call me mommy in front of people like this. Don't ever call me mommy in front of Larry's family. He'll be, they will disown him and we'll lose everything. And I hung my head, not knowing quite what I had done. And I said, yes, Aunt Norma, I won't. And I went back to Atlantic City and I told Aunt Peggy and Uncle Paul about this and they were horrified. Um, and then several months later, when mom called to say that she was going to become Mrs. Larry Storch, that her dream was finally going to be fulfilled, I was as elated as she was. I was jumping all around the house. Oh, I'm going to be the child of, daughter of a star, daughter of a star. And we hung up the phone, and Aunt Peggy pulled me aside and said, not so fast. 
you need to make sure that you never tell anybody that your mom is married to Larry Storch. If it's found out that, uh, that he's, you know, he's married to a woman that had a black child, his entire career could go south. They'll cancel the show that he's in. All those ballet classes and um, tap dance classes and swimming lessons and piano lessons and the summer camp that you love, that'll all disappear. She was trying to get me to understand the economic price of being black in this country, which during the 60s was still pretty severe. And frankly, it still is. In 1960, according to the census, something like 25, there were only 25 black millionaires in the United States of America, which is an amazing thought to think about. And so the money that she and Paul got to help raise me was really important in our family. So I learned that I was just going to be black. And I was fine with that. By the time I had reached college, I was blacker than now. <laughs> We got to the 60s, you have to remember, I'm growing up at the same time that the country is going through the Vietnam War crisis and, uh, and African-Americans as a whole are sort of reaching the point where we've sort of had it. Um, this is the period when Cassius Clay beat Sonny Liston and changed his name to Muhammad Ali. It's the period when Stokely Carmichael invented the phrase black power. Um, I went to work with the Black Panther program. I you know, served breakfast in Atlantic City, New Jersey. I sold the papers as long as Aunt Peggy would let me, and she found out about that, put the kibosh on that pretty fast. And by the time I got to school, I was uh, sort of um, you know, really determined that I was going to live my life as a black woman. There was a group on campus of um, multiracial students. There was a multiracial, I think they called themselves the Multiracial Students, Harvard Students Alliance or something like this. And I refused to join them because I didn't want to have anything to do with being multiracial. If I was multiracial, why had I just lived this entire painful existence that I'd been growing up with? And sure enough, I, I chose my side and then in November of that year, my freshman year, my mother calls me, she's having her 50th birthday party. She's decided to have it in Las Vegas. Now, as a card-carrying member of the Black Panther Party and an avowed socialist at the time, <laughs> going to Las Vegas was a counter-revolutionary act. <laughs> I couldn't figure out what I was going to do. But Aunt Peggy had raised me to always do what my parents told me to do. So mom was turning 50 and she wanted me to come to Las Vegas. I was going to have to figure out a way to go to Las Vegas. But I went to Las Vegas on my terms. I had this big afro that was like, you know, bigger than Angela Davis's. <laughs> uh, some of you remember the Roberta Flack's first album. <laughs> I had a leather miniskirt and my leather high-heeled boots and my fishnet stockings and I arrived at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas to a sea of white folks wearing chiffon and Indian and coral turquoise jewelry. <laughs> and I didn't want to have anything to do with them, but there I was with my mom and with Larry. She was wearing a Ralph Lauren original navy blue rayon long uh, gown and a white feathered uh, headdress, looking gorgeous as she always did. Um, and she wanted to go see Johnny Cash for her 50th birthday. Now, black folks don't listen to country music in <laughs> Atlantic City, New Jersey. So this really wasn't happening for me. I was like, Johnny Cash, are you serious? So we go to, we go, I had to go, because she was going. 
So we go and we're sitting in the grand ballroom of Caesar's Palace, which I think at the time was the largest place I'd ever been in. It was just huge. And Larry looks around and all of a sudden he sees the heavyweight champion of the world, Muhammad Ali, sitting a few tables away. And we get up and we go to meet Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, at that time, who was still the heavyweight champ, was still in shape. He was the biggest man I have ever met. Huge, just, he was like, it was like meeting the Berlin Wall. <laughs> he put his hand out to shake mine and I felt like a six-year-old, my hand just disappeared inside of his. But as I looked around, I'm seeing he and I are probably the only black folks in the grand ballroom of Caesar's Palace. So I decided that I was going to rib him a little bit because I was so shy that that was the only thing I could do was use laughter to try to get out of the situation. So I said, hey, champ, how come you and I are the only black people in here getting ready to listen to Johnny Cash? And he says to me, girl, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. Where I came from, there's a whole lot of black people listening to country music. <laughs> So this sort of put a damper on my, you know, my revolutionary, my revolutionary fervor, and I go and I sit down and I'm listening to uh, Johnny Cash begins to play. I'd never really listened to Johnny Cash. I didn't realize the um, the degree of talent, the degree of emotion that the man brought forth from the from a, an acoustic guitar in his voice. And as he sang the song, it was almost a trite reaction, but as he sang the song, I walk the line. I felt like he was singing it to me. I felt like he was describing my entire life. I had grown up in a world where my friends were either black or white, where my family was either black or white, where I listened to music that was identified as music that black people listened to or as music that white people listened to. I dressed the way I thought black people should dress. I talked the way I thought black people should talk. But that night, the champ and Johnny Cash taught me a lesson. The lesson was that maybe I could balance myself on that razor and walk the line and have the people that I loved and the things that I like be on both sides in me and not have to choose. Thank you. That was June Cross. June wrote a memoir and produced an autobiographical film about her dual identity. But she told me that working on this moth story was one of the hardest things she's done. She said it was physically exhausting, and she took naps in between story rehearsals. She said, in my book readings, you have the safety of the written word to hide behind. To tell it, you actually have to come out from behind that shelter. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time I keep the ends out for the tie that binds Because you're mine, I walk the line The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Sarah Austin Janess. Our next story is from Mishka Shuvali. He's a musician, and after living out of a tour bus for a year, playing with the Strokes, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, and the Decemberists, Mishka showed up at the Moth Story Slams. He told a shorter version of this story you're about to hear at a slam. 
He didn't win, but we developed it with him for our main stage. Here's Mishka Shivali live at the Moth. I was fast asleep when the disaster struck. We hit with a deep, tearing crash of such sustained violence, I, f- I felt the entire boat shudder under me like a wounded animal. I tried to jump out of my bunk, but the boat flopped over on its side, threw me against the wall, and then back into my bunk. And the cabin filled with noise. I could hear boards twisting and squealing against each other. I could hear the boat grinding against the rocks. I could hear the crew yelling and shouting questions. I, I, I knew I had to find uh, John, Captain Peter's 89-year-old father. <laughs> and he wasn't in the bunk across from me, and he wasn't on the floor. So he had to be in the, in the front bunk. I, I called his name twice, and he didn't respond. So I carefully climbed out of my bunk and moved forward into the darkness, deeper into the ruined boat. Spring of 2001, I just graduated college. My friend Jacob had just shot his final speedball and died on his kitchen floor. And my drinking was spiraling out of control. Uh, I've been working with Jacob to try and keep him clean, even as I was drinking drinking before class in the mornings. Um, You know, just a medicinal amount to get rid of the shakes and the chills and the sweats. and then after we graduated, we played phone tag and, and lost touch. You know, he was trying to keep normal hours, and I was staying up till 8 a.m. drinking and doing coke. I, I didn't have a cell phone at the time, just a crappy pager. And uh, the day after he died, my pager delivered a voicemail from the other side. Uh, hey, what's up, man? It's Jake. Just calling. Um, just trying to catch up with you. Um, all right. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. I remember sitting at my kitchen table, drinking straight from the bottle, playing that message over and over again, searching for a clue, an explanation, a reason. I I wanted to die, but my mother had explicitly forbidden suicide. (laughs) So (laughs) I jumped at the chance to crew on a a dangerous sailing trip from the Dominican Republic up to uh, Florida. I thought it was a good compromise. <laughs> when, when I got to John's bunk, a, a shaft of light came through one of the scupper holes, and I, I saw a, a tangle of limbs like a pile of firewood, and my heart dropped. And I reached out, and I grabbed something. John, I said, yes. <laughs> Peter's father had slept through the entire thing. Several, uh, several equipment failures, a navigational error, and a storm had put us on the uninhabited point of an island in the Bahamas in the middle of the night. Uh, we got everybody safely on shore, but it was a bleak scene. Uh, Captain Peter's boat, his life's work, and his home of the last 20 years ruined on the rocks. And the five of us stranded there with a limited, uh, limited amount of water, and nobody knew we were in trouble. Uh, We shot off flares and radioed for help, and then when nobody came, we just got wasted on some red wine and passed out on the beach. (laughs) Peter woke me in the morning when the sun rose. He had been there several years earlier, and he knew uh, Matthewtown, the island's lone settlement, was a short 25 miles away. So he was going to hike that 25 miles to go and get help. I think I surprised both of us by saying that I would go. Mishka, I, I'm the captain. The captain always stays with the ship. <laughs> it's my responsibility. 
your responsibility is here with the ship. I can't let you go. Dude, it, whenever I say something serious, I have to preface it with dude. <laughs> dude, no offense, but you're old. <laughs> and you have Parkinson's, and you have a family. I'm younger, I'm faster, I'm stronger, and I'm expendable. I'm going. I took my share of the water, one gallon, some peanuts, and a couple of multivitamins that my mother had forced on me before I left. <laughs> I said, if I'm not back by this time tomorrow, send someone else. The beach was littered with trash, and right away I found a, uh, a hard hat. So I ripped up the rotting webbing out of it and put it on my head backwards to protect my head and my neck from the sun. I, I'd been wearing a t-shirt, shorts, and running shoes when the boat wrecked, but um, they'd all gotten soaked. So I was wearing a long sleeve white button down, my boxer shorts, <laughs> and the final humiliation, socks and sandals. <laughs> Ladies. <laughs> I, the, the shoreline unfolded in a series of deep coves, so I found myself covering twice the ground I wanted to. And after uh, crawling through several mangrove swamps, I decided it would just be easier to, you know, to walk point to point through the shallow water. I mean, I, you know, I knew I had to be careful, because if I twisted an ankle or something, they'd just be finding my bones years later. I mean, I knew there were sharks. Um, we'd been fishing off the back of the boat, and it seemed like every other fish that we caught, we lost to sharks. You'd have something on the line, and then all of a sudden it would go slack, and you'd pull up a huge fish head just gushing blood. And you could tell from the bite radius that it wasn't a little shark. <laughs> um, but that was out at sea, and you know, so, so I took off my sandals, and I took off my socks, and then in less than two feet of water, I want to say it was a 12 foot, like maybe 12 feet, it was probably closer to seven feet, but that's still a pretty fucking big shark <laughs> to come upon when you're walking into the water. Thank God it was dead, just rocking with the motion of the waves. <laughs> but if it was dead, then why couldn't I smell it? So I took a rock and sort of chucked it at the shark. It thumped the shark on the back. It thrashed wildly and then headed out for deeper water. So I decided to stick to the shore after that. <laughs> I took a couple of multivitamins and a handful of peanuts to get over the hangover, you know? And, but it, it, it just made me thirstier, so I, I didn't eat anything else after that. And, uh, I, you know, I mean, I was already starting incredibly dehydrated. And, uh, <laughs> and even holding off drinking until, like, my throat was parched and my lips were dry, I was already, like, down to half of my water before I knew it. And there was no place to stop and rest. There was no shade. You know, I would just, I would be cooked. Um, so I, you know, I, I kept going as my, as my water diminished and my condition degraded. Um, I made, I obsessed over these murky calculations. I knew that each step I took brought me closer to Matthew Town, And each step also used up some of my dwindling energy and brought me closer to zero. Now, I knew I'd made significant progress because I'd been walking for, well, I didn't have a watch, so I didn't know how long I'd been walking. <laughs> but either way, my water was getting incredibly low, and, uh, and I knew that regardless of what my destination was, salvation or the other thing, that I was getting closer. As the... Uh, 
As my sunstroke kicked in, <laughs> I laughed, I sang, I talked to myself. I, uh, start, I started to confuse shadows with water. So I would walk, walk wide around a puddle only to walk through a shadow that somehow got my feet wet. And the, the noise I heard, it was, it was my, my breath or it was the wind or the waves. It was, uh, it was a woman's voice cooing in my ear. It was several women laughing at me. It was a crowd cheering for me or booing me. It was a boat. It was an entire fleet of boats coming to my rescue. I, I had wanted to be test on this trip to see what I could do, if I could do anything, but I was ready for it to be over. I, um, I approached the point of one of those endless coves, and I, I willed Matthew Town to appear on the other side. You know, uh, crappy little gas station, hostile locals, uh, understocked, overpriced grocery store, melting popsicles. But when I came around the corner, there was just sand and sea and mangroves. And I fell on my face in the sand and I cried. I was 24 years old. And what had I done with my life? <laughs> I calculatedly drank as much as I could get away with at my job without getting fired. I had sponged unconscionable amounts of coke off of friends and strangers. I had repeatedly cheated on my girlfriend and I'd abandoned my friend Jacob in his time of need. <laughs> it seemed like I had spent all my time either jerking off or hungover or jerking off while hungover. <laughs> and now I was gonna die here alone on this sun-bleached rock, my life almost completely unlived. I cried for the songs that, that I'd written but not recorded and now people wouldn't remember me for. And I cried for all the fucked up shit that I had done <laughs> that now would be the only thing that people would remember me for. I cried because I was never going to see my mother's hands again. So, sitting in the sand, staring up at the sky, I made one last desperate calculation. The sun was directly overhead. So, worst case scenario, I maybe covered only 15 or 16 miles, which meant I had 10 miles to go. I had a, about a cup of water left, and my body was shutting down. Now, I read all those corny, macho survival books, they say you can survive by drinking your own pee. <laughs> so I'd held it all day long, but I knew I couldn't hold it for much longer. So the moment of truth, preserve my dignity and pee in the sand and lose all that moisture when I maybe had 10 miles to go, or recycle it <laughs> and maybe live to tell the fucked up story. I, I th it's funny, you know, it's only when you're facing death that your filthy truck stop bathroom of a life becomes so precious to you. <laughs> I, uh, I thought about my friend Jacob and I thought about that last fix that he took and, you know, I wondered if, like, did he know that something was going wrong? Did he see his death naked laid out in front of him like I saw mine? And was he scared? because I was scared shitless. But I knew that people were counting on me. I knew that Peter and John and the rest of the crew, they were depending on me. And I thought of the looks on their faces when they saw me on the decks of a Coast Guard cutter going in to rescue them. So I took off my construction helmet. 
and I unleashed a hot bladder full of brown, multivitamin-enriched urine. I mean, it glowed like it was radioactive. <laughs> With shaking hands, I lifted the helmet to my lips and I choked down as much of my own hot, salty pee as I could stomach without puking. And then took a, a, a couple of tiny, desperate sips of the water that I had left just to wash the taste out of my mouth. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to drink out of a punch bowl, <laughs> but it's not an entirely efficient process, so it was like dribbling out of the corners of my mouth and like off, it was a horror show. <laughs> But you know, after the wave of nausea passed, I felt great. <laughs> 10 miles, 20 miles, 50 miles, I didn't care. I drank my pee, I had what it took to survive, and I was gonna make it home. Less than five minutes later, I was rescued. <laughs> A group of biologists were out banding turtles. <laughs> and this was the last day of their study. And because it was the 4th of July, they almost didn't come out. Peter's estimate had been wrong, and I had walked 30 miles. And I was still 25 miles away from civilization. So when they brought me to the Coast Guard station, I, I told the Coast Guard right away, I said, listen, we got four American sailors shipwrecked on the northernmost point of the island. There's one of them is 89, and two of them require medication. Almost instantly, I could hear a helicopter starting up, and it sounded awesome. <laughs> just then, a call came in from the Bahamian Defense Patrol. They had just picked up four shipwrecked sailors on the northernmost point of the island, and they had sent one of their group off to go and get help, and he'd never been picked up. And they wanted the Coast Guard to get a helicopter. The dispatcher looked at, gave me a funny look and spoke into his radio. I think we got him. <laughs> they got me a shower. They gave me this T-shirt. <laughs> one guy made me a sandwich. Two slices of white Wonder Bread, one piece of bologna, one piece of American cheese, yellow mustard, and lots of mayonnaise. It was the best sandwich I've ever tasted. <laughs> so, it turned out that about an hour after, uh, after Peter had sent me off, he realized that the force of the impact had disconnected the antenna from the radio. So he fixed the radio, radioed for help, got the Bahamian Defense Patrol <laughs> right away. They'd been safe for hours. <laughs> so I got shipwrecked. I walked 30 miles in the blazing hot sun. I drank my own pee. And all I got was this lousy T-shirt. <laughs> In no way am I a hero. I couldn't save Jacob, and I didn't save Peter or John or the rest of the crew. But I saved myself. And I guess that's gotta be enough. That was Mishka Shivali. 
Mishka used to tell parts of this story wherever he went. One night, he got into a cab, and the driver said, I know you. Mishka said, no, I don't think so. And the cabbie said, yeah, you got shipwrecked. You told me the story the last time you were in my cab. We asked Mishka what it was like to craft the full story with the moth. This is is the thing about the moth, is that they're all true stories. So the more you learn about how to tell a story, and the more you learn about your own story, the more you learn about yourself and your own experience and how you perceive the world and how how you... perceive your friends and your family and why you didn't forgive that person that you should have and you didn't punch out that guy that you should have and um, I mean it really sort of made the for me the the moth experience made my my story explode in slow motion so I could see every little part of it. To hear Mishka's original slam story and see photos of the ship that wrecked visit our website themoth.org. While you're there, you can pitch a story of your own. Log on to themoth.org to record your pitch right on the web. Or you can call our pitch hotline at 877-799-MOTH. That's 877-799-6684. And you'll have about a minute to hook us. When we come back, a woman tells a story of her endless competition with her mother. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Sarah Austin Janess, producing director of The Moth. Back in 2009, The Moth traveled to Australia to produce a show for the Perth International Arts Festival. The 36-hour commute was well worth it, and one of the local stories we found is up next. Here's Susan Duncan, live at the mall. I'm going to tell a story about my mother. It's very hard to stand up to your parents, and it took me until I was about 49 to actually say to my mother, well, actually, to stand up to her. It was Christmas, And she was staying with me as she stayed with me for the past 30 years at Christmas. And I just had a breast removed and my lover had dumped me. And I told her this, she knew about the breast, but she never knew about the lover because he was fairly inappropriate. And she looked at me and she said, well, men don't like mutilation. (laughs) And I was... I didn't quite know what she meant for about two minutes. And then when I realised what she'd meant, I was so enraged. I said, this is the last time you'll be spending Christmas under my roof. We got through Christmas. I took her home to her home at the foot of the Blue Mountains and I returned to my home, which was an idyllic little tin shack on the edge of pit water where the only way home is by boat. And it's on the back of the Karingai Chase National Park, a beautiful physical world a place where I felt at peace. Over the next 12 months, of course I spoke to my mother, but Christmas rolled around again. And I couldn't quite ban her from lunch, but I banned her from the house. I said, you're not staying with me, you can come, but you're not staying. So I booked her into a hotel, nearby hotel, just a sort of short boat journey away. She had lunch, we got through that, no blood on the walls, pretty good. And I went to pick her up on the fourth morning to take her home again to her home at the foot of the Blue Mountains. And she was waiting for me in the foyer of 
the hotel and she was beautifully dressed as she always is because, as she's told me all my life, she actually did look like Jean Harlow as a young woman. <laughs> Although she didn't really think Jean Harlow was particularly attractive, but people said she looked like her, so she supposed she had to accept that she looked like Jean Harlow. Anyway, as I picked up her suitcase, she handed me a piece of paper and I opened it up and it was the bill. And I looked at it and I thought, there's an extra zero. And I looked at the list, the itemization of everything, and she cleaned out the minibar every night for three nights. And I said, how much whiskey can a woman drink? And she looked at me and she said, medicinal. And then she said, will I be staying with you next year? It'll be much cheaper. And you know, I love that about my mother. I love that toughness, that ruthlessness, that desire always to have the last word. And I respect it. It means we don't get along that well, but I respect it. About six months later, she had a fall. And then about six months later, she had another fall. So she, first she broke her left wrist, then she broke, broke her right wrist. And it was the moment that I realised that there were a whole lot of decisions that I would have to make. My father is dead and my brother is dead. And I realised in a strange way that this was probably the moment that my mother was going to start becoming my child. And I had to work out a way to get her to have a look at a retirement village. Christmas came, I kidnapped her on the way home to the, her home, took her into this retirement village, opened up this door to this gleaming one-bedroom apartment with a little slushing creek going past, and I said, what about this? And this same woman who told me that she didn't want to move out of her own home ever because she knew where everything was, said, I want to be here in two weeks. And it was so easy, I panicked. I thought, my God, she's going to be 10 minutes away. So I went back home to my husband, Bob, <laughs> and I said, she's going to be 10 minutes away. And he's a very wise man, and he said, Susan, there's a moat between us. <laughs> and then he looked at me again, and he looked a bit more serious this time, and he said, she's not an Olympic swimmer or anything, is she? <laughs> no, no Olympic swimmer. We moved her in. We fitted it out just so beautifully, as though she was a new bride, beginning a new life, which is, in fact, what she was. And then we went back to her house to clean it out, to sell it for her. And I started going through the cupboards. And every time I opened a cupboard, it was filled with magazines. Now, when I was working as a journalist, I would ring my mother and say, look, this month I've got a cover story if, if you're interested. And she would always say, oh, I don't think so. The magazine's just too expensive at the moment. I, I, I don't think so. And here was this house stacked with magazines. All of them had my stories in them. And I, I, I just couldn't get my head around all this. So when we'd finished with the house and we'd gone back, I said, Esther, the house was filled with magazines, all my stories. Did you read my stories? She said, oh, oh people gave them to me. People gave them to me because they saw your name in them. And I said, well, did you read them? Oh, I don't know. I can't remember. Because to give a compliment would, I think, have killed her. <laughs> Time marched on. It was Christmas again. And I wrote a memoir 
Now, I always tell people who are about to write memoirs not to use them as a way to get back at people. However, my mother was a large part of my memoir. <laughs> but I would never hurt her. I really wouldn't. And the underlying basis of our relationship is love. There is no question about that. And there's also duty, because duty, I think, in family is the nuts and bolts. Love you just take for granted. So I wrote this memoir, and she, it was Easter, and she came to stay. She was allowed back under the roof. And I sat her down in an armchair in the sitting room, and I noticed something that I'd never really noticed. She was this little sparrow in this giant armchair when all my life she'd been this huge woman who, who just took over whatever room she was in. And I realised I'd, I'd never thought of her as being a moment older than 53. And here she was. She was 87. So she sat with this manuscript on her lap and I expected probably that she would say, no, you can't do it. But before she even turned the first page, she said, Susan, I have secrets too. And it was this moment where I thought, I think I'm finally going, maybe actually the two of us are finally going to break through. This is going to be the beginning of a new relationship. A relationship that's all about understanding and all about respect and everything you want a relationship with your mother to be. So I pulled up a stool. I mean, it was terribly Dickensian when I think about it. I mean, there I was sitting at my mother's knee and I'm 56 years old or something. But it was this, it was this huge moment and she began to tell me her secrets. And I couldn't help smiling because my mother has this shocking memory for anything that she doesn't want to remember. Totally selective. And yet when she was telling her stories about being a nurse in Darwin six days after the bombs were dropped, the detail was extraordinary and fascinating. And I listened to these stories. And then she said, I had an affair. And I thought, well, I mean, who hasn't? <laughs> and fortunately, I didn't say only one. Um, so, and then I, so I sort of realised, I, I got the sense that this was a big moment for her. So I said, yes. And he, she said, he was married. And I realised in that moment that my mother... Remember, she's 87. She grew up in a generation where to even think of premarital sex was a death wish. A married man was a guillotine. For her, this was the greatest shame imaginable. And she'd carried this lump of shame around in her chest for 60 years. And she'd never told anyone about it. And I realised in that moment that the reason she'd been tough with me was not because she didn't love me, it was because she feared for me. She feared that I would make the same mistakes that she would make. And the closer I came to making those mistakes, and I made all of them and a thousand more, the tougher she got because she was more and more frightened. She read the manuscript and with great grace, far more, I think, than I could ever have shown under the same circumstances, said, go ahead with it. And then she said, you know, you've lived the life that I always wanted to live. And I said to her, 
you gave me that life. And that was, that's probably the only compliment I've ever paid my mother to my eternal shame. Christmas rolled around again, and my mother's always been a drama queen. The end of last Christmas, at the end of last year, she had a heart attack, and she ended up in hospital in intensive care. And I went and sat with her on the first day she was there, and I could see she was terrified of death, absolutely terrified. And, and she was saying, I'm not frightened. Your father's there, John's there. I know I'll be looked after. It'll be all right. But she was terrified. I thought, perhaps this is a time to talk. Perhaps this is a time when maybe once again we will break through. She was not well. I left. I came back the next day and the bed was empty. To be truthful, the first thought I had was freedom. It was just flicked through, just like that. And then it was replaced with the most enormous regret. All those stupid little things that I'd hung on to, because children are far less forgiving of their parents than their parents are of children. Stupid. What was it all about? Pride and ego. Ridiculous. So I was sitting in this room thinking, idiot, idiot. And this doctor walked in and he said, well, can I help you? And I said, yes, I'm Esther Duncan's daughter. And he said, oh, didn't we tell you? And I said, no, nobody rang me. And he said, well, we've transferred her to Royal North Shore. <laughs> I said, oh, why? He said, well, we're going to give her a triple bypass and a heart valve replacement. And I thought, okay. So... <laughs> I drove to North Shore really quickly. And I went into the hospital and she'd had by now all this surgery. And the doctor said the big problem is dementia with patients of her age. That's what, if they get through the surgery, you have to worry about dementia. So I went in on Boxing Day and she was lying there and she'd had this major tube that they have down their throat removed. And she was asleep. And so I actually grabbed her hand, which was probably the first time I'd seriously touched her with affection for years. Or she, me, two-way street, okay? So she opened her eyes. Of course, I snatched my hand away. And I said, she looked at me and she said, it's Boxing Day. I didn't think you'd come in today. And I thought, well, there goes dementia. She's okay. <laughs> and then she looked at me again. And I said, how are you feeling? And she said, well... And actually, her voice was very scratchy because of the throat. And she said, they've given me 10 years. Guarantee. And I thought about it and I went, oh, 100, 101, 102. And we looked at each other. And we laughed and we laughed and we laughed. And then she looked at me again and she got that glint in her eye when she knows she's absolutely on a roll and she's about to throw the dagger. And she said, I think I can stretch it to 15. <laughs> and I looked at her again. And then that glint just got even brighter and she went, I win. That was Susan Duncan. She's a writer. Her professional name is Susan Duncan, but her married name is now Susan Story, which is fitting. To celebrate her 90th birthday, Susan's mom, Esther, insisted on a band, a florist to do the flowers, and food for 80 people. 
including her 99-year-old boyfriend. Susan did the cooking. To see pictures of Susan and Esther in Pittwater, you can go to our website, themoth.org. While you're there, you can learn all about our programs, sign up for the free weekly podcast, or pitch your own story. And here's a pitch we liked. I was about 22 years old when I decided I was going to build and tap dance on top of the world's largest cowbell. And I accomplished this task. I built the cowbell and made flyers. I toured around the country with my band. I tap danced on top of the cowbell. And I, six months later, got an email stating that not only do I not have the world's largest cowbell, I don't have the second largest cowbell. It was the owner of the second largest cowbell uh, getting a hold of me to crush my dreams. And I guess that's where the story really starts. Pitch us your story. We'd love to hear it. You can call our pitch hotline at 877-799-MOTH. That's 877-799-6684. That's it for the Moth Radio Hour. We hope you'll join us next time. This hour was Sarah Austin Janess, the Moth's producing director. Sarah also directed the stories in this show. I'm going to call the names of the folk who did not get to go up tonight. Please come on up and tell us the first sentence of your story. The rest of the Moth's directorial staff includes Catherine Burns, Sarah Haberman, Jennifer Hickson, and Meg Bowles. Production support from Jenna Weiss Berman and Brandon Ector. Uh, my mother caused the blackout in New York to prove a point. Moth Stories Are True is remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Moth events are recorded by Argo Studios in New York City, supervised by Paul Ruest. The first time that I ever crowd surfed, two things happened. One, I got dropped on my head. And two, I saw the man I was going to marry. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Johnny Cash, The Books, and Tom McDermott and Evan Christopher. It was my first year at Michigan State University, and I moved into a dorm that said LBGT. I didn't know what that was. <laughs> the Moth Radio Hour is produced by me, Jay Allison, with Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. When I was 15, my dad lost his job, but that meant that he could go on spring break with me. This hour was produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. The Moth Radio Hour is presented by the Public Radio Exchange, PRX.org. I got a phone call from my girlfriend asking about why I had proposed over a snail mail, and I had not. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching your own story and everything else, you can go to our website, themoth.org. My first mistake was assuming that the walrus would be reasonable. <laughs> Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly Open Mic Story Slam competition. February's theme 
is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.